0: On this episode of 1.21 Geekowatts, we talk with Kathy Garver, the voice of Firestar on the 1980s animated series Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and my son Scott returns to help me break down the good, the bad, and the awesome of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Now, straight from May Parker's kitchen in Forest Hills, Queens, this is 1.21 Geekowatts. Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Geekawatts episode number 16 for May 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. If that all sounds good to you, kick back and relax your home. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is the 15th film from the seemingly unstoppable Marvel Studios. It reunites not only the characters of Star-Lord, Gamora, Drax, Rocket, and Groot, but also brings back together myself and Scott Barton, my 12-year-old son, to talk about their latest cosmic shenanigans in the following spoilerific discussion. As we embark on this review-slash-geek-out decompression of Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2, let me ask you a question. When you read or listen to movie reviews, do you wish that the reviewers would openly cry more often? Well, you came to the right place. Don't worry, it's sweet, not weird. This segment was recorded on Saturday, May 6th, Free Comic Book Day 2017, a fact which will become relevant right now.
1: As I'm sure you know, today is Free Comic Book Day, celebrated by geeks all around the world. But this year, this weekend not only contains the wonderful day of Free Comic Book Day, it is also the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 Opening Weekend, a movie that we just saw and we are now here to rant about
0: it. Hi, I'm Brad. I'm the other half of the Wii. You've been listening to Scott Barton, my 12-year-old son, um, and I bring that up in part because Guardians of the Galaxy 2, as you've probably heard by now, is very funny, it's very exciting, but people, I'm here to tell you this movie has some serious heart going on and um, If you were inclined to see this with your child, or to see it with your dad, or whatever, um, ladies, you're invited too, of course. But there is a lot of father-son action going on in this movie, and I'm not going to lie to you people, I'm not going to lie, tear ran down my face. Why? Because it has heart, and because I was sitting next to my boy, and we were father-son nerding out together, and that was pretty... Pretty exciting. I'm gonna cry again right now! I'm not really crying, I'm faking right now. Um, and of course, it's not probably a uh, free comic book day when you're hearing this, but it is when we are recording it. And that's a pretty cool day, especially since Guardians of the Galaxy was one of the free comics today. Yeah. So let's talk about this movie. Oh my gosh, we just got home from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And what's your overall impression, Scott?
1: It's so funny. It's... The best movie.
0: Is so it funny. is it the funniest Marvel movie so far?
1: Yeah, I, I think, think it so. Might be.
0: I think it might be because it's clearly going out of its way to try to be funny. All the Marvel movies are pretty incidentally funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny stuff always happens because Marvel knows what they're doing and understands that Uh, Bringing some comedy into their stories is going to make everyone want to watch it a little bit more. But this one is really, really trying hard with some extended sequences of just being there for the jokes, really.
1: It's what Guardians of the Galaxy is all about.
0: Yeah, and I would say that um, 99% of the time those jokes all work, so congratulations to them. Um, Totally nailed it. Um, James Gunn directing this movie and was the sole screenwriter, I think, this time around really is knocking it out of the park. And uh, I am already feeling good about the fact that he's signed up again for Volume 3 of Guardians of the Galaxy and is making uh, overtures with uh, Marvel Production Chief Kevin Feige about wanting to expand the cosmic Marvel Universe beyond Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But we'll talk about that in a moment. I think that's where we should end. Before then, let's talk about... The plot. Do you want to break down the plot of this movie, Scott?
1: No, thank you. You can do it.
0: (laughs) Well, um, for those of you that are not familiar with it necessarily, and if you're not familiar, by the way, you shouldn't be listening to this because we're going to talk about spoilers in a sec. But as you've probably gleaned from the trailers... If you're still continuing to venture forth, even if you haven't watched the movie, then you understand that uh, this one is largely about uh, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, Chris Pratt, whatever name you want to call him, uh, finding his father. And his father is played by Kurt Russell in the role of Ego, which if you are a comic book reader, you know that Ego is...
1: The living planet.
0: The living planet. And you're thinking, what? Wait, Kurt Russell is a planet? I don't. How does what's? How does that work? What's the deal there? Um, Well, it all makes sense in the movie. They absolutely figure it out and explain it in a way that makes sense
1: through science. Through
0: through made up fake science, yes. Real science. Real dubious science, yes. Real. And uh, if you are a comic book fan of Ego. Uh, all two of you out there who are comic book fans of Ego and know that usually Ego appears as like a gigantic planet with a face and a beard. Um, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere, because maybe your dreams will come true. Let's talk about uh, the cast. So did you like Kurt? You, you probably don't know who Kurt Russell even is, do you?
1: Well, I've heard the name before.
0: Okay, so Kurt Russell... Uh, was a big deal in the 80s, especially mm-hmm. um, such movies as Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Escape from New York and lots of uh, 80s awesomeness, The Thing remake. Um, mm-hmm. So like many things about Guardians of the Galaxy, this movie loves its 1980s. We know that from the soundtrack the first time around of mm-hmm. the movie, which is full of 70s and 80s tunes. Um, this one is no different, and really, probably dives even more into the '80s. Were there were there yeah. references that you understood, or maybe didn't understand, that but you knew they were from the '80s?
1: I understood one because it was in the trailer, so you explained it to me beforehand. <laughs> You're
0: welcome. Which one was that?
1: It was at the beginning where Chris Pratt has a little remote controlled thing that was like for a football <laughs> video game. Yes,
0: electronic football <laughs> from the 80s, yeah, which he's clearly converted into some sort of tracking device or something along those lines. Um, yeah, we get uh, electronic handheld football. We have plenty of Kurt Russell. Uh, there is, uh, there, are, there are many references to fellow eighties, um, superstar David Hasselhoff, the Hoff, uh, who is all over this movie in so many bizarre ways, <laughs> not just conversationally. And I'll leave it at that. Um, and of course, lots of other jokes, uh, fans of cheers. Enjoy this movie. Uh, lots and lots of 80s going on. But that's not all. There's other cast members that we should talk about, too. We meet um, uh, a new... I wonder if she's going to be a Guardian of the Galaxy in the future. The character is Mantis. Um, and I'm blanking on the actress's name.
1: Zoe Saldana.
0: That is... No, that's Gamora. S- yes. Um, I think yeah. Her first name is Palm, and her last name is something along the lines of Clement... Tough
1: Clementine,
0: I you're not helping at all. <laughs> just by sh- shouting out words that <laughs> vaguely sound like what I'm trying to get at. Um, what did you think about Mantis?
1: Uh, she's cool. She beat emotions, good yeah. skill to have <laughs> in various scenarios.
0: Yeah, she was pretty funny, also. Yeah. I think what's cool about Mantis and some of the other Guardians is that um, we know that Drax at least established in the first movie like does not understand sarcasm or subtlety or comedy really mm-hmm. everything is super straightforward with him so he always reacts like a total goon all the time which he continues to do in this movie although it seems like he's trying hard to understand uh like comedy level 2 <laughs> mm. by like this is my version of a practical joke um but his his honesty um, even when he shouldn't be honest is still sort of punching through and ruins relationships for him or whatever yeah um, and uh, and I bring that up because Mantis also has sort of an interesting variation of that. like she just has never spent any time with anyone and doesn't know how to behave. So she's like a total blank slate um, and innocent and then God help her, the people who are gonna introduce her how and how to like be people, normal humans, are the guardians of the galaxy, which are, like, the motliest crew of idiots ever, and, like, stunted arrest development, so they're the wrong ones to learn it from. That's my point. Definitely. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Um, What did you think about the bad guy? So we're introduced to this uh, character. Her name is Aisha. She's the leader of the Sovereign, um, this group of gold-skinned super rich aliens or whatever. What do you think about her?
1: Um, I feel like she wasn't sketched as thickly as she should have been. It's like the whole motivation was just trying to get their batteries back and that's it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a little flimsy. It, it's more like the, the, uh, the, well, the ego, I was going to say, of their people. Like it's sort of like you insulted our. You dared to insult our people. Therefore, mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna hunt you across the galaxy.
1: They're expending a lot of resources on those batteries.
0: They were. They were. The batteries, of course, being the uh, the MacGuffin that is stolen at the beginning of this movie by Rocket because he can't help it. It's something shiny, so he's all about it. Grabbing it and. Uh, setting things in in motion. You know, I I know that we're sort of gushing about all this. I'm going to I have a um I have a negative I'm going to bring up. Oh. Um maybe two negatives actually. Overall, get I get out. I <laughs> won't get out. It's my house. My name's on the mortgage. You get out. Um Two things. One, the visual effects in this movie, amazing, of course. They're yes. they're great. And if we're watching the first one and thinking like, can they really pull off a CGI raccoon and tree man? You don't even think about it in this movie. You know, we're beyond that. The Rocket is, a you know, a character as legit as anyone else, emoting just as much as anyone else. But I would say that they almost... It's almost kind of cartoony the way that uh, some of the action is in some cases. And I think that's because they were going for that. Like they wanted to be really comedic, but like people jumping from huge distances and landing pretty normally or getting smashed into a wall and like they are constantly getting beat up. There's a lot of physical comedy in this and everyone usually just sort of gets up and shakes it off, which seems like. Even if this was in the Avengers, and Iron Man got up after being hit by some giant rock or meteorite, like he'd be all scratched up and be like, "Oh, that was horrible," but these guys are like, "That was amazing! Do it again! Awesome!" That's Drax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I will say is that I feel like in the middle of the movie, we kind of sagged for a little bit. Like I sort of thought, I'm enjoying all these scenes. I love these characters, and I love checking in with them. I'm not sure what the point of this movie is right now. Huh. Like what the real objective is. Like we got to the part where the Guardians, uh, f- most of them at least, are, are on Ego's planet and we're learning a little bit about, about Ego, we're learning about his relationship with with Peter Quill, and uh, it just sort of seems like, all right, well, here we are, pretty cool planet. Guess I'm learning some stuff about myself. And there doesn't really seem to be any big urgency or issue.
1: Well, I feel like in that part of the movie, they also had Rocket and Groot and Yondu's action. So that kind of picked up the slack, I think.
0: Yeah, I guess. It did. It did. Right. The, it, it's sort of interesting in that the uh, our characters, our heroes do, in fact, kind of get split up for a while of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. That, yeah, Rocket and and Yondu and Groot, yeah, are all having their little adventure with the the Ravagers and everyone else is off on Ego Planet doing their thing. Um, Yeah, so that was, I guess, my only criticism in that um, I'm not sure where we were going for a little while in the middle, which seems weird to say now, knowing that how things were, ended up at the end was like a big deal and all sorts of stuff to have to deal with. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the fact that this movie remarkably loves playing with the obscure cosmic characters of the Marvel Universe and uh, seriously, I said we were going to be spoilery here it comes. Here are the spoilers. If you don't want to know about the Easter eggs in this movie, or like the 400 endings at the end of the movie, I know there's only five, I'm exaggerating, but seriously, five, there's five endings, there's five bonus scenes at the end of this movie, then um, then avert your ears now because...
1: You turn your ears off or turn off the device that you're using to listen to this.
0: Which is maybe a Zune, which is what Peter gets at the end. Uh, his new MP3 player to replace his Walkman. Oh, the Walkman. Um, okay, the cosmic characters of the Marvel Universe that are all over this. Holy smokes, there are so many new ones that they just sort of drop. They just are like planting these little seeds. To maybe bring them back or not? I don't know. I don't know what they're going to bring back.
1: Was that a reference to the fact that Ego is literally planting seeds?
0: It wasn't, but it did go through my mind as I said it. So maybe it unintentionally was that. Okay. Okay. Let's dive in. So once again, for the, for the super weird, obscure characters of the Marvel Universe, we once again see our good friend Howard the Duck. Yay, Yay Howard. Howard! We see our friend Stan Lee. Of course we know that. We, we know that Stan is going to be in it. He's in everything. Who is Stan talking to?
1: Watu? Maybe I'm not pronouncing that right.
0: No, well we don't know if it's, if it's officially <laughs> a Watu, but it is in fact Three Watchers. Three of the Watcher race, which, at least online, I haven't read the stories. I've been trying to stay spoiler-free, but now that I'm in it, I'm totally going to read these stories where people are having all kinds of theories about, like, wait a minute, Stan Lee is telling the stories to the Watchers who watch everything in the Marvel Universe. Is Stan Lee a Watcher? Did he just give them all the stories? <laughs> it's. I'm not sure what the deal is.
1: Maybe he writes the stories as the writer... So, and then the Watchers watch him write the stories. That's what he was doing. And that's how they know everything.
0: Ooh, that's something to chew on. I like that. Who watches the Watchers?
1: Stanley is the Beyonder.
0: Ooh, that's Scott's theory, that he's the Beyonder. And uh, at this rate, I'd I'd go for it. I, I have to say that when we last see Stanley at the end... And he's talking about like, wait, guys, I've got so many stories. Stanley is an elderly man at this point. And I I kind of fear, like, if I don't want this to happen, I want him to be an immortal being. I want him to be a celestial. I want him to be an eternal. I want him to live forever. That's not going to be the case. And seeing, but seeing that last scene with him, with the watchers telling them, I've got so many stories, guys, just listen. If... If if something truly sad had happened, a la Carrie Fisher passing away just before Rogue One came out or like during Rogue One's run, if Stanley like a day or two ago had passed away and that was his scene, I promise you I would have been crying openly in the theater about seeing Stanley saying but I've got so many stories guys oh it's making me sad thinking I'm about you cry it right. Now. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's move on then. Um, So we see the Watchers. We see Howard the Duck. Oh, you're all teared up for real. Oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. Um, This was just like in the movie at the end. Oh, We've got to talk about Groot. We've got to rewind a little bit and talk about Groot. He is a baby in this movie. And now we're going to make it really personal. Now you get to know about what happens in this household when Mm -hmm. Scott and I are not hiding down in the nerd room in the basement. Um, Like right now? Like right now recording this so scott has a two-year-old brother his name is charlie and uh groot acts like a total (laughs) total monster tell me he doesn't act exactly like charlie sometimes he's adorable sometimes he dances sometimes he just beats up on drax for no good reason at all that's you that's your relationship right there it's like i've decided i don't like you today I'm going to beat you up and I don't want to be around you. But then at the end he wants hugs and he wants affection and at the end he was totally snuggling with everyone, being very sweet and falling asleep on their shoulders Mm -hmm. while the soundtrack is playing. It's not time to make a change. Oh lordy. If you are a 40 year old parent and you see this movie, get ready to cry if you've got kids. It's going to take you out. I promise that. Okay, back to the cosmic characters. While we look for tissues to wipe up our tears, down in the basement. Um, right, so here's the really juicy stuff. uh, And that would be the fact that Sylvester Stallone, what, appears in this movie, sure does. And he appears as a character named Stakar. In the movie, Stakar is a Ravager. Those are those space pirates that we met last time with uh, Yondu and his crew. In the comics, Stakar is the real name of a character named Starhawk, who was in the original Guardians of the Galaxy lineup. What do you say? The original Guardians of the Galaxy? Yes. When they were introduced the Guardians of the Galaxy in no way shape or form resembled the stars of the current Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So, we're down in the nerd room at uh, 1.21 gigawatts headquarters because I have pulled out of the mountain of comic books uh, a Early issue, or probably from the late 80s, Guardians of the Galaxy, at least. Scott has not seen this yet. And I'm hoping for reactions as we go through. As I point to here is Starhawk. Uh Oh. All right. So see, he's got these weird pointy things on his helmet, which um, in the movie, Sylvester Stallone has sort of weird pointy things on his shoulders. Um, This is Yondu, of course. Um, Looking at the... uh, He's relatively close, although he looks like he's got a weird superhero costume in the comics. But he's still blue. He's got a big red fin. He's got arrows. Got it. Other people that are appearing on the cover of this comic may or may not be... They may. They are. People that have little cameos... Towards the end of Guardians of the Galaxy that in our theater, probably because of the star power of the people playing them, there were gasps of people going like, what is the he doing here? So we saw on this cover, this is a dude named Martin X. He uh, was like made of diamonds and came from probably some super dense planet or whatever. Do we see Martin X in the movie? Yes. Sure do. Um, this is... The here, here's a big, bulky, muscular dude in the comics. His name is Charlie 27. Um, we see someone who I think is Charlie 27, who uh, I believe is played by like Ving Rames. Do you know who I'm talking about? A big in the movie, was a big African American yeah. guy, yep. yeah, of course. Um, and we also saw Michelle Yao, um, of Hong Kong action fame playing uh, a character. This is confirmed in the credits. I couldn't read the credits fast enough, but in the credits she's listed as um, Alita or Aletta. Um, In the comics, that is a very blonde Caucasian woman who is not what Michelle Yao looks like, but Michelle Yao is infinitely cool. She's the coolest ever, Um, and that's who she's playing. And so what I'm saying basically is that the original Guardians of the Galaxy lineup seems to have been cast and then sort of repurposed as being like the original Ravager crew or something. Mm -hmm. And man, if they did not set up that lineup to be either a return trip from those characters, if not their whole own darn movie, I don't know what they were doing. What was your impression of that at the end?
1: I think they're setting it up for phase four or whatever phase it is when they've done all the stories they're like hmm it's a good thing we planted those scenes way back when scenes way back when where now we have all these things that we can use and we can say we used these because we're brilliant story writers and it wasn't just luck
0: (laughs) it's not just luck that's for sure not to mention the fact that they are dropping Serious hints here. I'm going to phrase this this way. When we're, when I was walking out of the theater, I was behind some teenage guys who were like, Okay, well, I guess I need to go home and Google what uh, Adam means. uh, Because
1: is it with a T or a D?
0: Oh, I don't know about that. That's
1: what they're asking. They were asking that, yeah.
0: Seriously, yes. Oh, come on, kids, for crying out loud. It's Adam, as in like first, the first man, Adam, but most importantly in Marvel Comics, it's Adam Warlock is someone that they're also totally setting up. We've thought that we've seen him before, way back in that bonus scene in Thor the Dark World when um, Sif uh, and Volstagg go meet um, the Collector to give him an Infinity Stone. Well, now we are totally seeing him again as we set up that final scene. And you know what? That's the note I'm going to leave you on. So, Scott, if you were to rank this somewhere overall in the uh, the Marvel movies, would uh, you put this near the top, near the bottom, in the middle? What do you think?
1: Uh, probably near the top. Near the top? Yeah.
0: Okay. I. Uh, it's hard to argue with that. It's a, it's a pretty solid movie, ladies and gentlemen. But you already knew that. Um, I think... Uh, do you have any final words that you'd like to leave us with? I am Groot. I am Groot as well.
1: I'm Groot more than you.
0: So the verdict is in! We liked it! And we are not alone. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 currently has an 81% fresh rating at Rotten Tomatoes, and at the domestic box office the movie has grossed over $340 million. Its worldwide total is over $793 million, knocking on the door of $800 million worldwide. Not only will the Guardians be getting a third chapter in their big screen franchise, but they'll also be dropping in on the Earthbound heroes of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Avengers Infinity War in 2018. Cannot come soon enough. Now we shift away from Marvel Comics characters on the big screen and focus on their small screen exploits. Like many kids in the 1980s, Saturday mornings were defined in my house by snarfing down cereal while watching hours of cartoons. One of my favorites was Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends, which had three seasons of original episodes and then a few more years of reruns. One of Spidey's Amazing Friends was Firestar, an original character with red hair, a yellow bodysuit, and various fire-based powers. Fireballs, fire shields, you know, the usual. The voice of Firestar was provided by Kathy Garver, whose prolific career dates back to the early 1950s. I spoke with Ms. Garver in March at the Big Apple Comic Con about her remarkable filmography, the perils facing child actors, and the Hollywood legends that have come in and out of her life. When you look at the list of credits of performer Kathy Garver, your eyes light up at different points depending on your generation. If you're a baby boomer, you might know her best from her role as Sissy on the hit 60s TV show Family Affair. If you're a Gen Xer, you may be most familiar with her work as the voice artist behind Angelica Jones, Firestar, on the 80s Saturday morning cartoon Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And the millennials have heard her voice in any number of animation and video game projects. You are a busy, busy lady. Kathy, welcome to 1.21 gigawatts.
2: Thank you very much. And now, everybody can read my books that um, I just have one out this year and the year before. So, as you say, yes, I have been busy.
0: Absolutely, and and I I haven't seen I haven't read them myself yet, and I can only imagine that they're fascinating reads. If for no other reason, because your career started at age seven, correct, is that right? On some iconic shows, Red Skelton, our Miss Brooks. Did you come to acting because you wanted to do it at that young age, did you tell your parents, like, this is what I wanna do?
2: No, because I actually started at three years old, tap dancing at the Megalyn Kitty Studio, and my mother, I guess, thought I was going to be the next Shirley Temple, didn't all mothers at that time, and my hair was in curls, and indeed, that was where Shirley Temple was discovered at the Megalin Studios. So I didn't really have a lot to say about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What kind of memories do you have of the legends that you worked with in your youth? Because that list is amazing. I know that you would cross paths with. Milton Burl, Bing Crosby, Patty Duke, just to start. I mean, that, that list alone has got to be immense.
2: Well, one of the biggest things and most epic movies that I did was The Ten Commandments. Yeah. And I do remember very well Charlton Heston, the imposing figure that he was as Moses, and, of course, Cecil B. DeMille, who was the great actor. And then the other wonderful uh, actors and personalities that you mentioned. Now, Patty Duke, um, she wrote the foreword, to my second book, which was my memoir, Surviving Sissy. And unfortunately, when my other book just came out, Ex Child Stars, was the month that she died. And I was, you know, so sad that she passed away because what a brilliant, brilliant actress she is.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned Ten Commandments. I know that that was uh, one, one of your early big breaks, and it's hard to have a bigger big break than the Ten Commandments, of course. Did that just feel enormous to you? As a kid, I mean, I would imagine uh, to the adults, it felt enormous. That was just such a massive, massive production that it's almost hard to Transpose yourself into that situation.
2: As a child, I believe that I had a whole different perception of what was going on. I did not know Cecil B. DeMille, and I didn't know that we were shooting an epic of all time. I did know that I loved to go down to the stables where they were keeping all the the donkeys and oxen and animals. Oh my! And the the feels the the, the feelings of the different textures of places. I was sitting on a paper mache mountain and feeling that and when the Red sea closed I was on that same mountain and feeling the spray of water in my face and the the ruggedness of the costumes that I was wearing the hemp like clothing and the coldness of the makeup that was being applied to my skin I I felt it all more than intellectually got it and then afterwards I think oh my gosh this was this was some movie <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely I, in that case it probably is a benefit maybe to be a a younger performer to know, like, Cecil B. who? Whatever. (laughs) All I know is, oh, this is the part where we're going to get sprayed with water. How fun. Um, Family Affair ran for five seasons on CBS and was a hit, multiple Emmy nominations, a true cultural phenomenon from the late 60s. And although I haven't personally seen a lot of episodes, when I do watch it, I'm struck by how, as a sitcom, the show is driven by... Kindness and personal sacrifice and and even a degree of sadness more than jokes 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 punchlines 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 all the time Uh, It had a really interesting tone Um, Did it did it feel that way when you were when it was being created or is that just my blind? 2017 cynicism showing that I'm expecting something different from this which really is a very kind show a very sweet show
2: very much so and it was a dramedy more than a comedy and it was a sitcom so the comedy and the gentle comedy was based more on a situation than you would have the jokes and insults and things like that and the one-liners that we have today there were one-liners but it was addressed to the comedy of the situation the humor of the situation the wit of this situation it was very character based and each show and i believe It is such a classic today and that has withstood all the tests of time because it had very classic themes and it had a classic format. Whereas you would start with the problem, the solving of the problem, and then the denouement. So it was on that... Um, going up and then and then down. And so people every time coming back to the show had a familiarity. They weren't going to get any shots of all of a sudden there's a flashback or all of a sudden now we're in the future or all of a sudden, you know, there are four pictures on the was sure. It was, you, it know was a, you, know you know what to expect. You know the characters. You care about the characters. Long close-ups. So you really got to know who the people were and the eyes were the window of the soul. And so the eyes really told that story. So, I no, I think that you pegged it exactly right.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. When you mentioned the the close-ups, I I didn't really think about that until you brought it up. But that is absolutely true. The camera lingers for a long time uh, as if, well, really climbing inside, especially the kids, I feel like, uh, inside their heads to see their wheels turn or imply that their wheels are turning and see their faces change as they process, you know, what's going to happen to them, especially in those early episodes when like, am I loved? Do I want to be here? Do, does this man want me to be here? It's really interesting.
2: Yes, because it's based on these orphans you know, they, they lost their parents, and they were from the country. And all of a sudden, they are in the big city of New York without anybody. And as you say, those those things, am I loved? And, you know, this, like, thing of abandonment, you know, will we be abandoned again? So that was the, the underpinnings. There was a certain trist, you know, a certain sadness, you know, that was uh, under underlaying everything.
0: Uh, I understand that you had a close relationship with your cast in the years after the run, which was probably alternately wonderful and very sad, given the circumstances of of what happened to some of those folks.
2: Yes, and uh, poor Anissa died at 18, who played Buffy, who was just so adorable and such a sweet child, but she got on drugs. And then Sebastian died very early of a stroke. And then um, Brian Keith died um, of suicide. Uh, but he had been given six weeks to live. So there was lots of tragedy, even though, I mean, the show was based on tragedy, but it kind of then seeped into yeah. those characters himself. And even Johnny Whitaker, who is the only other surviving uh, member, Nancy Walker, who came in the last season, also passed away. And um, he was on drugs and on alcohol, and was certainly in going down the same path as Anissa, before he was redeemed and now has been clean and sober. And then there's me, the ba- the banner Here's carrier. You,
0: right? <laughs> Absolutely, So, I, and I know you talk about this in your book and you've talked about it in other interviews a little bit, but uh, not, not to get too deep, and I realize I'm pushing us to that direction, but how do you think that you then as a child actor were able to break free of that harmful cycle that seems to claim so many young performers? And, and I don't feel bad even, suggesting that you know we sort of live in a world when you see child performers are really talented child performers the default thought almost is oh i hope they make it because that's often not the case so what what do you think was was the situation with your case
2: well and I, I put in my, my latest book, the ex-child star book, what happened to these children, and this I, I chronicled them in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the young stars that were on the TV shows, and why didn't it happen to me, and then I, I do a summation at the end. I was very lucky, and it has to do with family, supportive family, it has to do with that family not taking the young star's earnings, and spending them on all the other members of the family paying the mortgage with their earnings when the child is doing all the work and then when they get to be 18 they have nothing left it's that happened to many even johnny Whitaker, you know that he came from a large family and his lots of his income was used yeah oh yeah And, and that was spent on raising the kids so education is very important i have a bachelor's degree in speech i guess you wouldn't have known that i'm such a quiet person uh from ucla and a master's degree in theater arts so i i had that to to carry me through and in my particular case i i was born in la and in hollywood but when i was 14 i moved to san bernardino which is a place well now unfortunately it's known for the terrorist attack but right then, it was a very tranquil place, uh, about two hours out of Los Angeles. Being two hours out of Los Angeles, though, is like being in Ohio right. from Hollywood. Right. So. I had that very important time from like 14 to 18 to find out who I was and my identity. Now these kids that are 14 to 18 on, on social media and oh my God, you wore red with blue? What's wrong with you? You're just so stupid. And they say, am I stupid? I don't know who I am. Why are these people coming at me? You know, and so it's very scary for them. And so then they say, I need something to numb me. I need something to escape, all of that. And Disney was very smart, and now any of his young stars, he has them go, and it's in their contract, to a therapist every week, and talk about their problems so they are not interiorized, and then all of a sudden break out in some rash acts, you know, or worse drugs.
0: I didn't realize that. that. That is a genius move. It makes so much sense. I mean... <clears throat> it's good for them obviously as a company to protect their investment but to be taking care of these kids and give them a foundation i love that oh good deal um okay i apologize for the hard right turn away from that topic but before we leave the 60s and 70s i, I need to ask you about match game and hollywood squares uh <laughs> because that's amazing how, how what was that experience like? How much of that was, was improvised and spontaneous? How much was scripted? Who were you on with? Tell me everything, Kathy.
2: <laughs> I love game shows, and I've always loved to play games. I still do crossword puzzles, and I I like the competition. I like to be tested of my knowledge. Why is it just going to stay in my head? That's why I keep writing books. You know, I say, well, let me tell you about this. Or, so, um, Hollywood Squares was really fun, and I actually write about that in my, my memoir book, Surviving Sissy, and I Say how I was in the locks box, and that was where they put usually the pretty girl on the TV series <laughs> of the of the year in that box. And they, they she doesn't get very many questions because they expect her to be a locks, not being able to talk, not being able to respond. So there I was, and. You already had a degree from college, sure. so I, I knew the question, and, ready, yeah. and I, I was ready, and they were so surprised, so I went back and back, and then they even started writing little jokes for me, but, you know, a lot of the people that were in the boxes, and Paul didn't, you know, whomever, Burt Reynolds, who asked me out, <laughs> and I didn't go. I do not know what's wrong no, with me. No. Well, maybe that was better, but, <laughs> and so uh, we, we had a great time doing that i i love the match game and in all the shows uh, dating game i was just talking to jackson boswick yes. who, who is here and captain marvel ah. and as you had mentioned i i was uh, spider on spider-man and his yes. amazing friends as firestar so we had a, a marvel universe to talk about but he was on the dating game and and had a great great time and great experiences as did i
0: that's great. So let's talk about Spider-Man. I was nine years old when Spider-Man and his amazing friends premiered. I had been reading comics for a few years at that point. So to see the Marvel Universe come to life uh, was like heaven. And the fact that one of the Spider-Friends, Firestar, a new character, she wasn't in the comics, very cool. Um, how, how did you get involved with that show? Why do you think that they went with your voice? What was the quality that you brought to it?
2: I think um, I had... I have a very clear voice and plus I have lots of different range but I can be very strong if you want me to and I can also be very sweet like Angelica Jones but then when she switched to Firestar she was commanding and so I think my intent I hate to you know I'm not bragging but i I was born that I was just smart you know and I have used that uh, you know quality that God gave me you know to coordinate with the emotionality of an actress so I'm I'm a real big left and right brain believer where the one brain is analyzing something and the other brain is just emoting, putting those together, which makes, to me, the strongest presence.
0: Absolutely. I I was watching one of those episodes again recently as, as we wrap up here. Uh, and, and forgot, and I say this with love, how much gloriously corny dialogue there is in that show. Sometimes a lot of here come the trouble twins, <laughs> and uh, Iceman being a an, uh, popsicle, and lots of webheads and wall crawlers you know, this sort of thing that typically rolls off the tongue in a conversation. Um, do you remember if those scripts were, were directed in any, any sort of heightened way, or were you directed in a heightened way to be? I mean, I, what you just gave me even really sort of sells it that the, 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 between sweetness and boldness.
2: They were very good scripts in the fact that I think the simplest things are ones that are not attenuated, that people respond to, and that can get right away. And especially in a series, um, the animation was uh, primitive in a way. But what that also did, again, was enable the audiences to really see the characters and to go with them. Um, and it was. A, Wonderfully directed. Thank you so much though for
0: Thank you very here. much. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Kathy Garver's books, Surviving Sissy and ex child Stars, co-written with Fred Asher, are both available at KathyGarver.com, on Amazon, and at finer brick and mortar bookstores near you. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Cut and print! Big thanks to my guest Kathy Garver and to my movie-reviewing podcaster and training offspring, Scott Barton. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means more to me than you know. Seriously. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What parts should be treated to a sweet embrace by an alien face hugger? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. Those would be the 1.21 gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121 gigawatts And on Instagram, you can check out pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Geekawatts. It's new every day. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website! It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www121 gigawattscom and delight in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section at the iTunes store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy podcaster. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can always find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts on soundcloud.com. Huge gratitude to the Earl of the Equalizer, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. Please share it! The best hope I have to grow this show is with your help, so pick the episode you like best and tell a friend about it. You can follow, like, etc., all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago, and let people know that you're listening. Every little bit helps. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2 Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.
2: 1.21 gigawatts. Whatever geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, you might meet Luke. Leia's dad, pop culture that is super rad. Posted by some guy named Brad, it'll rock you to your nylon, Cylon socks. 1.21 freaking gigawatts. Heat shield. More heat!
1: It's counteracting the goblin's ray.
2: More heat! I can't hold the nitrogen off much longer! It's eating through my heat shield! The ice! I'm losing power! I'll crystallize! Good shot, Spidey!